electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, a whole new can of worms, a shock downgrade, sending Boeing shares down big. Is it the latest crisis that is it just beginning? Block, JetBlue, Spirit Airlines merger rejected. And it could have major implications for the way you fly. Elon's long game, what is really driving his new push to grab more control of Tesla. The economy's silent alarms. The big short, Steve Eisman is here on the hidden risks for the year. Bob Iger's compensation revealed and is maybe not even the most tantalizing detail just released by Disney. We have it. And are the return to office wars finally over with the workers being the winners? A data point you have to hear. And now a single NFL playoff game may turn the way you watch sports upside down. All that and more over the hour. So belly up and buckle up because last call is up right now. Hi, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. We've got all that and more coming up in our hour. But first up on Last Call, your money and these markets. Now, of course, we came into the year on a red hot streak. Two months of nearly going up every single session. But something seems to have changed with the calendar. The Dow fell again. The S&P 500 did, too. And even the can't-be-stopped Nasdaq was stopped breaking a six-day win streak. Now, one reason, rising interest rates. We moved back above 4% on the 10-year today. Remember, it's almost been a perfect correlation lately. Yields go down, stocks go up, or vice versa. And this comes after a Fed governor's not-so-dovish remarks, where he appeared to push back against expectations for as many as six rate cuts this year. Now, inside the market, something random but interesting did happen. Microsoft popped again. It is now extending its lead on Apple as the world's most valuable company. It was also a good day for most semiconductor shares. Investors in AMD, they got a nice 8% pop. NVIDIA up again as well. They followed a price target hike on the street as well. So if you own semiconductor companies, take your family out to dinner and don't skimp on the appetizers. So let's kick off the hour with a man who never skimps. One of the biggest bulls on Wall Street, Fundstrat's Tom Lee. And I should have said that because you think the first part of this year, despite being bullish for the whole year, could be a little bit skimpy in terms of return. Uh, yes, Brian. I, I, I think we've got to digest that huge move you talked about. Where's Tom Lee and what have you done with him? You were Mr. Bull last year. You were right on the mark about everything. And now you're a little more cautious. Yeah, maybe it's because I skimped on the appetizers. That's it. Well, that's uh, later. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm still optimistic for the year, but, you know, in the first half, and we got a glimpse of that today with uh, Fed governors talking about not sure how many cuts they want to do. That's going to make markets nervous. And we got a pretty lousy Empire survey reading today, a regional PMI, 
and that's going to get people worried about a soft landing or hard landing, those don't, don't get answered for the next six months. So I think it's possible that we make a, a minor new high before the end of the month, and then we might have something like a 7% drawdown. The, the Fed governor you're referring to is a gentleman named Christopher Waller, very smart guy, but he's not Jerome Powell. He is not the chair of the Federal Reserve. With all due respect to Mr. Waller, why is Wall Street suddenly paying so much attention to the, these one or two couple comments? It's a, it, it's a fair question. We, we know for the last two years the Fed's been fighting inflation. So we know what that kind of regime and playbook is. Now we're moving to a playbook of, well, inflation is slowing. The Fed wants to keep real rates from getting too high. But we don't know what kind of cuts and when those happen. That's the nervousness we're going to have over the next six months. I don't like to place too much credence in one month of data, particularly among some of these sort of smaller or more regional Fed surveys or surveys of this or surveys of that. You referenced one, though. This is the Empire Manufacturing Survey, folks. If you don't know what we're talking about, don't worry. 95% of you probably don't. It is a manufacturing survey around New York State. And usually it gets completely ignored by Wall Street. Nobody cares except this data point. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom. Came in so awful that even people who didn't care about this Empire survey suddenly started to care. Yeah, it was pretty atrocious. It was awful. But is, you think it's just one noisy data piece? Uh, there's a lot of things that can make it noisy. Uh, we know supply chains are being rerouted right now, and we know markets have been tumultuous. And, you know, we've seen that during weeks of market corrections, regional surveys often tank because the pur- purchasing manager might just say things are worse, but it's because the stock market's down. So it's really hard to know how much is signal versus other things contributing to it. But I I want to be optimistic today, and you do remain bullish. 5,200, correct? Yes. On the S&P is your price target for the year. That is not changing. Yeah, I I think investors who are long-term oriented should really just ignore the first six months. You know, we have a Fed that's going to be shifting from being really tight to accommodative. Earnings are recovering. We've got... uh, Interest rates coming down, that's great news for consumers. And I think businesses in general have a CapEx cycle ahead. So, I mean, the stock market should do well this year. It's just, it doesn't mean it's a straight up. Well, that's about a 9% gain from where we are now. If you are also correct in that the market tumbles a little bit in the next couple of months, you know, we all know it takes a bigger gain to get back to where you were after a drop because of something called math. So it's going to take maybe a 15% jump from the trough to get to that 5,200. Yes, Brian, that's right. I think there's a chance at some point this year, maybe it's June, you have a chance to make 20% between now and your end. And I think small caps could make a bigger move, you know, 50 or 60%. So I think there's still... What? Yeah, I think the IWM could end the year, Russell 2000 could end above 3,000. Now, I'm, I did not know you were going to say that. One of my four predictions, and no one cares what I think, but I do these predictions so people can tell me I'm wrong, and because they, they love to say, you're wrong, right? Uh, was that small caps would outperform the S&P 500. S&P 500 just seems two and a half times sales, so far more expensive than any other major index around the world. It sounds like you would agree that people might start to find out there are a couple of other thousand stocks out there yes. which may deserve their attention. That's right. And small caps relative to S&P on a price to book basis back to where they were in 99. That was a launch point for 12 years of gain. So, yeah, I'd agree with you. I think 
I think the, the calculus is favorable for small caps. Repeat that. Small caps, price to book, 99? Yeah, relative to the S&P 500 is back to where it was in 1999, which was the absolute low and was a launch point, 12 years of outperformance of small caps. Wow, I wish I would have known that. I would have put that in my prediction. It sounded a lot smarter than I was. That's interesting. I mean, but that is small caps, much more than large caps, which do a lot of business around the world. Small caps purely are a play on the domestic American economy, are they not? That's right. Uh, and you know what, what you, we have to appreciate is small caps often dominate their industry. So what you'd call a high Herfindahl index company, you know, they could be the top two or three player. It's just a smaller market. That's why they're a small cap company. High, high Herfindahl? Uh, yeah, it's a measure of market concentration. The, the uh, what's, what's a Herf, I, Herfindahl? Sounds like something my wife's German grandfather would have driven yeah, around. I, I, I just bought the Herfindahl, but she broke down. Yes, it's, uh, it's an index created to measure market concentration. The Department of Justice looks at it, which is why they might not want the JetBlue spirit merger to happen is oh. the HHI gets too high. Um, but what small caps often dominate, whether it's HVAC or certain plumbing industries, they're yeah. the best player, it's just a small market. Because they've, and that, by the way, those are some of the richest people in America too. The people that do these industries no one thinks about, they roll them up. Yeah. How did you become a billionaire? I'm the sausage king of Chicago, Abe Froben, right? I mean, it happens. That's right. I mean, that's, that is the true American story. These are great businesses and very profitable. I love it. High Herfindahl. Any day you can learn something is a good day. I learned something, the High Herfindahl Index. Tom Lee, great stuff. Thank great you. Great to see you. All right. Well, we talked about the macro markets. Here's what happened in the markets today. Your stud and dud. Well, the stud was AMD. We talked about semiconductors, right? AMD up 8%. Optimism around AI. What else? Feeling chip stocks. The big dud. Boeing. That dive coming off an unexpected downgrade from a major Wall Street bank who just a few weeks ago called Boeing one of their best bets for the year. The stock fell just under 8%. And Boeing's woes are raising big new questions about how far and wide any FAA investigation of the 739 MAX jet may go. We'll get reaction from a former senior Boeing manager turned whistleblower, along with a Boeing shareholder, after this. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. All right, welcome back to Last Call. There is a lot of airline-related news to hit up tonight. First up, a federal judge has blocked JetBlue's planned buyout of Spirit Airlines. But why? And what might be next for the two and air travel in general? Phil Abode joining us now with more. Phil, do we know exactly why this deal was blocked? 
Uh, well, the judge said it wasn't good for consumers. In fact, the President Biden out with a statement tonight saying that he's happy that this decision was made because he does believe it's good news for consumers. Of course, it is his Department of Justice that prevailed in this case. So here's what's happened. A judge has blocked this proposed merger between JetBlue and Spirit Airlines from going through. JetBlue and Spirit, we reached out to them for a comment. Both say that they are assessing their legal options. Haven't decided yet whether or not they may uh, appeal this decision. In making the ruling, Judge William Young said, Spirit is a small airline, but there are those who love it. To those dedicated customers of Spirit, this one's for you. It was not one for investors of Spirit Airlines. Stock was hammered today. We're showing you Spirit Aerosystems. Different story. But if you take a look at Save, you'll see that Spirit Airlines was just absolutely hammered today, in part because Helene Becker, respected on Wall Street, she put out a note raising the possibility of bankruptcy, saying, we believe Spirit is likely to look for another buyer, maybe private equity. But a more likely scenario is a Chapter 11 filing followed by a liquidation. Just for your point of reference, Spirit, if it had merged with JetBlue, the combined airline would have had more than 10% of the U.S. market, a market that's dominated by the four largest airlines. They have 67% of the market. JetBlue, Alaska, and Spirit all have about 5 6%. As you take a look at shares, there it is. There's a look at where we are in terms of the big four versus Spirit and JetBlue. But again, that deal's not going through. I want to show you that chart that we just had up there going back to July of 2022. This is what the stocks have done since they first said, yeah, let's get together. And at the time, JetBlue said, okay, we're confident this is going to happen. How confident? Part of the sweetening of the deal to make uh, uh, Spirit go with them instead of Frontier and leave Frontier, who they originally proposed a merger with, was a $70 million breakup fee. Now they're on the hook for that if they ultimately decide not to appeal. Alaska and Hawaii, I want to quickly show you that. Remember, they have a proposed merger for $1.9 billion. Both airlines say, look, our deal is completely different, different dynamics in terms of the market, the Hawaiian market, and what's going on there. That's why we do not believe you can compare JetBlue and Spirit with Alaska and Hawaiian. Nonetheless, the DOJ, Brian, it has shown if he wants to fight an airline deal, it will go hard. And today, they were victorious. That's it. I love the judge. I mean, listen, some people love Spirit Airlines. They, they think it about the consumer. We'll, we'll see what happens. Phil Boat, appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Well, staying with the airline industry, it's been another bad day for Boeing, its employees, and its investors. In a shock move, Wells Fargo downgrading BA shares and dropping its price target. I say shock move because Wells Fargo had named Boeing one of its top picks for the year. The analyst there warns that ongoing FAA investigations into the Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet could, could uncover more quality problems. Maybe it also could not. The downgrade and other concerns sent Boeing down big. In fact, just under 8%. Now, in related news, Boeing has appointed retired Admiral Kirkland Donald to serve as an independent advisor as MAX 9 grounding stretch on. Donald will lead a review of the company's quality management system and report his findings to Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun. This internal review comes on the heels of the FAA's audit of the MAX 9 production line and suppliers. And now Calhoun is expected to meet with leadership from Spirit Aerospace at Spirit's main campus in Wichita, Kansas tomorrow. Spirit Aerospace is not Spirit Airlines. 
totally different company, and Spirit Aerosystems is the main supplier to Boeing. In fact, they made that part of the fuselage where they had that door plug blow off. So what can we expect to come out of these reviews? Let's take it to somebody who has worked at and with Boeing. Joining us now is Foundation for Aviation Safety Executive Director and former senior manager at Boeing 737 Factory, Ed Pearson. He previously raised his concern about quality issues to Boeing and later to Congress. Ed, so we appreciate you coming on. Um, Number one, do you think that these problems are similar or somewhat related to the fatal crashes that occurred a couple years ago? Or do you believe these are separate things? And to what do you ascribe some of these seeming quality control issues that we are seeing at Boeing? Well, Brian, thanks for having me on. And um, yes, unfortunately, we see a clear connection between the Alaska airline incident and the two crashes that occurred in 2018 and 2019. Uh, The correlation is that these were all had manufacturing issues. Um, people are very familiar with the MCAS software and the pilot training. What they're not familiar with is that both of those two planes that crashed also had manufacturing defects in them. Um, and people can look it up for themselves and review the Ethiopian final accident report that was published in December, 2022. Um, as far as your question about, you know, where do we go, if you will, um, I, I think it's, it's very concerning because um, the elephant in the room, quite honestly, is that there's been a lot of discussion about the 737-9 MAX airplane, which is the one that was involved in the Alaska incident. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been, you know, the comments have been that there's nothing going on wrong with the Dash 8. Well, we beg to differ. We've been looking at data and, and watching that airplane very carefully over the last couple of years. And just in the last two weeks... Um, we've seen a, a couple um, serious uh, concerning incidents. Uh, there was at least two United flights where they had issues with the anti-icing system on the engine. We also had an airplane that had um, issues with um, the stab trim motor, which is the electrical motor that drives the horizontal stabilizer in the back of the plane. And we also had a Southwest plane had a compressor engine failure on takeoff. This has all happened in the last two weeks. Um, we have been trying our best to get the word out that things are not right. And so we are concerned about it. Okay, without getting too in the engineering weeds, okay, I was recently on a 737 MAX 8. I was recently on a 737-900. And many of our audience probably were too. I only bring that up because I'm wondering if you could explain in sort of layman's terms what may be the difference between all these different variants, because the 737 has all kinds of different configurations. The Dash 500, the 800, the 900, those are different than the Max 8 and 9, correct? Yes, they're they're all different. Um, There's different seating arrangements, but also the planes that you refer to are what we would call the NG or next generation airplanes. That was the model that was built before the Max. So just, and I get a lot of questions like this. We get questions from people all the time. You know, what is a Max? Which one's a Max? Um, Max airplanes are 737-8 and 737-9. An airplane that's uh, 737-900, for example, is actually the older model airplane, the next gen. And the planes that we've had these problems with that we're talking about are all Max airplanes. They're all the 737-8 and 737-9. What's the Now, I I understand, again, I've talked to pilots. I've looked up the specs because you get on a plane, you're flying through the air at 37 miles, that thousand feet at 600 miles an hour, kind of know what you're getting into. 
that the, the, the Maxes have a little bit higher thrust on their engines. And I know some pilots have talked to me about, you know, there's di yeah. certain different ways to fly. But from an engineering perspective, why would the Max 9 be, I don't want to use words like risky, whatever. You get my point. Why would they be different from a construction perspective than a Dash 900? So the the let me let me just say that we have people in our foundation that are aerospace engineers that can speak to the engineering maybe even you know far better than me. But I will just say, the airplane has two brand new engines that are uh, reportedly more fuel efficient. They have a new auxiliary power unit. So the infrastructure of the plane is different. There's a different wiring and uh, there's a lot that's the same, but there's a lot that's it's new. Yeah. So and the airplane itself has got. Um, even though it has a new engines and and a new and some new stuff, it's really still got the old crew alerting system. So to passengers, it's maddening. My own family have had difficulty avoiding the Max, and it's it you know and unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is people will go and their flight will get changed at the last minute. They'll mm -hmm. move to another gate. I'm sure that's happened to people. So so I would just say you know the Max airplanes that we're speak you know we're talking about the concerns that we have that were involved in two fatal crashes and this latest incident with Alaska, and these other incidents that we're seeing they're all 737-8 planes and 737-9, and in the United States there's yeah. four carriers fly those planes. There's United American, Alaska, and Southwest. And so I can't help any more than just say, you know, be mindful, you know. Would you, let me, we got to go, Ed, let me just quickly, and I appreciate it. Would you get on a Dash 800, Dash 900 right now and fly tomorrow? Yes. Yes, and I good. have. Yeah, good, good. Uh, Ed Pearson, uh, really interesting and important information there, and we do certainly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, one big thing to watch around Boeing is that it's a stock that much of Wall Street loved coming into the year. A number of Wall Street firms, including Wells Fargo, UBS, Citibank, Bank of America, RBC Capital Markets, and probably more, all naming Boeing one of their overall top stock picks for the year. Keep in mind, those picks happened and were named before the Alaska Airlines fuselage blowout. So could Boeing still be a best idea, or does this investigation completely change the game? Gabelli Funds Aerospace and Defense Analyst and Fund Manager Tony Bancroft, on set also a Lieutenant Colonel for the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve, so always appreciate your service, Tony. Thank you. Uh, you're, you heard what Ed Pearson had to say. Does it change your investment view on Boeing? No, it doesn't change my investment view long term. Uh, it's one of our largest holdings in our uh, Gabelli uh, ETF GCAD fund. Um, and, you know, in the near term, there's going to be machinations with the price, depending upon what news has come out. Long term, you know, Boeing and Airbus uh, are going to build 40,000 planes in the next 20 years. Uh, commercial travel is growing faster than world GDP. And we're going to see a sec secular and structural tailwinds uh, for the commercial aviation industry. I guess what I don't understand about Boeing is how important the MAX 9 may be I know they're coming out with the Max 10. Is that sort of the future of Boeing? In other words, if those airplanes, if investigators are like, no, 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 those planes can't fly. Okay, let's hope that doesn't happen. But would that be the worst case scenario? And how reliant is Boeing on those jets for everything? You know, so the, the planes that are impacted, the, the Dash 9s, they have the low density uh, seating with the door plugs. That's about 171 planes in the U.S. I think of 189 mm -hmm. Uh, globally, that's of 1,400 planes in service right now of of of, uh, of the maxes. So I think in in again in the near term, there's going to be 
these inspections are going to go on. There's, there's going to probably be some, uh, some stalls, some fits and starts. But over the long term, you're going to see uh, max production you know, uh, within line that, that Boeing has projected. So, so part of your investment thesis, bullish investment thesis, yes. one of your larger holdings in the ETF, is that max production. Yeah, max yeah, 9, for sure. max 8, the coming max 10 will not be impacted long term. What if it is? Uh, you know, I think if, it's, if there's long-term implications, I think Boeing will be able to adjust as they were with the last, uh, with the last uh, two mishaps. They were able to adjust their timelines and, you know, put different aircraft in different places. And, you know, obviously COVID was a big, was a big mm-hmm. factor as well, but Boeing worked through it. And I, I just don't think in all, in all reality over the long term that this is going to be a specific assembly issue that I'm 100% confident that Boeing will come through, make the quality assurance checks. Because it's basically a duopoly for big aircraft. Yes, it, it, is, it is a you duopoly. You got Embraer, you got Bombardier, you for, got this China company. But for big global airplanes yes. and big domestic manufacturing, there's Airbus and Boeing. For sure. That's it. Yes, that is it. So you remain bullish. Uh, uh, 100%. There you go. Tony Bancroft, Gabelli Funds, remaining bullish on BA. All right, still ahead. Six trillion reasons you may want to feel optimistic. Plus, the big short Steve Eisman joining us with an outlook you're going to want to hear. Trust us on that. That's coming up. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. By the way, thank you to Aaron and everybody for that awesome, snazzy new graphic. Sometimes in my own head, that's, that's happening. So thank you. All right, it is time for your daily RBI. And since everybody always accuses the news media of being overly negative about everything, it's partly true, we thought we'd flip the script for a trillion reasons to be optimistic. Actually, six trillion reasons. And this one comes from our friend Torsten Slock at Apollo Investments. He and his team note that since the Federal Reserve began raising rates, the amount of money sitting in money market funds has exploded, going from $4.5 trillion to $6 trillion in just under two years. Now, you may not fully realize how much that is. So here are some random but interesting stats. A trillion is a thousand billion or a million millions. Six trillion is about the same size as the annual spending of the United States. And six trillion would be the fourth largest country in the world by economic output. So now that we know that, why should you care about this? Well, because Slock says that if and when the Federal Reserve starts to cut rates and maybe reduces the rates in a money market fund, some of that money is likely to flow out because you're just not getting the same size return by sitting in that fund. Now, if all that happens, and it may not, but if it happens, those billions or trillions will have to flow somewhere. And Slock thinks a lot of that is likely to go right into stocks or the economy. And Apollo says it could help power things like housing or even hiring. So there you go, America. Someone in the media 
giving you six trillion reasons to be optimistic. You're welcome. And it's random, but interesting. All right, so while there is optimism about those parts of the market, here we go, there is some growing worry about the state of business or the economy. Remember, the stock, Kramer says this all the time, the stock market and the economy can be very different things. Here is Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on Squawk this morning. The consumer has been relatively strong. It, they've held in there. They continue to grow their spending. The, so demand's there, but businesses have gotten more and more cautious, really facing this question. If we're told that there's going to be a, a decline in the economy, soft landing, we predict, but still from a 4 to 5% growth rate to 1% growth rate is a steep slowdown. Moynihan's comments come as shares of Bank of America fell today. Morgan Stanley also went down after reporting their numbers. Same story with other big banks like JPM, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup. Goldman did go up today. So what, if anything, is the price action of the bank stocks telling us? Could they be warning of trouble ahead? Well, your next guest knows a thing or two about banks. Newberger Berman Sr., portfolio manager Steve Eisman. Of course, as you've heard a billion times, but I like to say it. It's played by Steve Carell in the movie The Big Short. Do you ever get sick of hearing that? Or is it cool? I'm a little bit sick of it, but I have to say it. I come to accept it. It'll probably be on my tombstone. Uh, all right. So you know how many times, Steve, I'm going to do that when you come back on the show? Zero. Zero. <laughs> yeah, well, that actually did happen. There you go. I didn't even plan that. Steve, thank you for coming on. We won't do it again. We like all your future investments. You're not just a bank guy. You're an investor. You look at everything. But you heard us on the banks. Banks are kind of this big thing. Do you think that the banks are, are telling a little bit more of a worrisome story or no? No, not at all. Absolutely not at all. Why um, not? I mean, the banks have issues that are really per- peculiar to them in terms of the, their net interest margins, which is the biggest driver of their earnings. Uh, credit quality, while there's been a little bit of deterioration, I would call it normalization more than anything else. Yes, loan growth is slow, but that's probably a lot to do with what happened with Silicon Valley and the fact that deposits are leaving the banks and the slack's been been picked up by companies like Apollo. So I I don't find this earnings season particularly informative about the economy from the banks at all. Yeah, well, we've seen things like debt defaults go up. You know, there are companies out there that kind of lived off cheap money or 0% rates. I think the tide is perhaps going out up 80% year over year, but on, you know, we've seen higher in the past. How do you read that, Steve? I mean, you're talking about off of a very, very low base. Right. The, you know, the companies that have issues are probably those that, you know, got funded by venture capital companies, you know, high growth, no earnings, negative cash flow. That party's over. Um, you know, I, I don't think that party is going to come back for a long time unless the Fed really dramatically cuts interest rates. Would that be good uh, I, if the party was over? I mean, I look, I, I think some of these companies have really have to go away. You know, capitalism is, I think, creative destruction. and We need some destruction in that area. But the overall economy is fine. I mean, never forget, 70 percent of the U.S. economy is driven by the consumer. Consumer spending is still going up. As long as that's the case, I don't find anything particularly worse. Yeah, and you, and, you, and you heard the RBI ahead of you, Steve, which the, the $6 trillion in money markets. We don't know if any of that's going to come out. But if it does, do you agree with Apollo's thesis that that money could probably just be a net negative either for stocks and or the economy? 
I mean, it's circular because you have to you have to have interest rates go down, and if interest rates go down, the market goes up because the market's addicted to cheap money. So it's not going to happen unless rates go down. And, and then the question is, how much is the Fed going to cut rates? And get, it gets back to the original question. The one thing you did so well in subprime was that you looked at things that others weren't looking at. You put the puzzle pieces together and also you took some big chances and big risks and they turned out to be spectacularly correct. What is one thing you are starting to look at right now, Steve, that maybe others aren't? I think that the theme outside of tech that we are really focused on is infrastructure. Uh, the United States hasn't had an industrial policy probably in anyone's lifetime, and it has one now. It's going to spend $1.2 trillion over 10 years on infrastructure, onshoring, roads, grid improvement, greenification. It's a lot of money, and there are a lot of companies that are going to benefit from it. And it's, it's, it's what I call it. It's a nice non-tech theme to have in, in people's portfolios. Kind of the, the energy side of the infrastructure story, Steve? The, more the greenification side of the energy side. Uh, but, Solar, but, use some utilities, um, companies that build solar panels, uh, hyd some hydrogen, um, Things like that. And then there's the entire issue that we have to really dramatically improve the grid of the United States because it's just not capable of doing what we need it to do. And so that's a lot of construction and improvement that's going to have to happen. Yeah. And there's a lot of companies that do it. And we'll leave our, our, our audience to guess and find out which ones those may be that are catching Steve Eisman's eye. And we appreciate you coming on, Steve. Thank you very much. Uh, you have a great day and hope to see you again. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right, on deck, Elon Musk saying he wants to control even more of Tesla, but some shareholders may be saying no thanks for a surprising reason. We'll tell you why. All right, welcome back. Let's talk Tesla because founder Elon Musk is pushing for more control and more shares of Tesla. He posted on X, which, of course, he also owns, quote, I am uncomfortable growing Tesla to be a leader in AI and robotics without having 25% control. He then adds, quote, unless that is the case, I would prefer to build products outside of Tesla. Musk currently owns around 13% of Tesla. That is a massive amount for a public company. And some investors may not want him to own even more, but there's a lot going on here. So let's try to break it down and maybe what's driving this desire for more. And that is with Gerber Kawasaki, president and CEO Ross Gerber, also a longtime and well-known Tesla investor. Now, do you kind of view this almost as like a veiled threat? Maybe not even veiled? You know, it's funny because he was like gave that blackmail me with money speech the other day. And now he seems to be like blackmailing the Tesla shareholders saying he won't build stuff for us unless he gets another 30 billion, which ironically was exactly how much money he sold of Tesla stock to buy the platform that he's tweeting on, you know, his echo chamber. So, you know, he sells all the stock to to buy Twitter and now wants more stock. But the idea that he doesn't control Tesla is absurd. Because remember, he has also options on 7% of the Tesla share count as well. So he really controls 20% of Tesla currently. And so nor the idea of paying a CEO $30 billion makes any logical sense in the modern world who already has a $150 billion stake in the company. So it's really disappointing and I think a conflict mm -hmm. of interest that he's even threatened to not build 
products at Tesla when he's actually the CEO and has a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders. But he, I mean, he built this amazing company. He's built many amazing companies. Why? Let me just take the, the other side, Ross. He, who, everything he's done, <clears throat> for the most part, I mean, X has got some issues, but he bought it. We'll see if he can fix it. But everything he's built has done great. So yeah. or for the most part, maybe not like the boring company. We'll see where that goes, but or whatever. But you get my point. Why not just let him do it and see what he can do with it? What's the harm? Well, once again, if you look at the company today, the, uh, the idea that he doesn't control Tesla when everybody on the board is a friend or family member of his is the part I'm really pushing back on. OK, you know, he controls Tesla more than anybody controls any company. OK, so the idea that he needs more stock to do this is it, it, it just seems weird to me. You know, like, I just don't know where that's coming from. So why would 25 percent matter any more than 20? You know, he, he already controls the company. Do I think he deserves another 30 billion dollars to do the job that he already has a 50 billion dollar pay package? You know, his current pay yeah. package is worth. 50 billion. It's a very like, small. I'm, we're looking at his board. Sorry to interrupt, Ross. We're looking at the board. Keep that up, guys, because it's a very small board for a company that size. You got Elon Musk, you got his brother Kimball, you got the uh, Rupert Murdoch's son, James, you got another Aussie, Robin Denholm, not that I care where they're from, but whatever. JB Straubel, who's kind of a renewables guy, Joe Gebby, who founded Airbnb, got an investor, Ira, and Kathleen right. Wilson Thompson, who came from Walgreens. That's a pretty small boy. Eight is enough. I and guess. These are all his friends. I mean, these are his friends. And remember, he's also comped these people so excessively that they were sued and now have to give back $750 million in compensation. There's never been a board of directors that was comped $750 million. And they've had to give it back because this is not an independent board. They're, this is not an independently run company. This is a company 100% controlled by Elon. And, and I don't think anybody should be confused about that if you're a shareholder, nor am I. Now, that's been fine for a long time. But then to come out and say, I need another $30 billion or else I won't do my job, which but is what, building... But, but again, given his track company. record of success, if what if uh, given the $30 billion, maybe he turns the $30 billion, like Dan Ives might think, into a trillion-dollar opportunity. If you give him $30 billion and he takes it to a trillion, that's a good deal. I'm not saying he will. I'm just playing devil's advocate 100%. here. And, and once again, if the board of directors wants to give him another compensation package with ridiculously difficult, you know, challenging goals to achieve, I have nothing against that. But the concept that he needs more ownership to have the incentive and control to do this at Tesla is what I have a problem with. Well, there's other companies. Let's be fair. Again, there's other companies like Ford and Meta where there's voting shares and all kinds of classes. And you may think you have control, but you don't. Right. Right, but he actually has control. I mean, he does. And yeah. so, you know, I just think it's just like there's a reality here. And and I don't, and once again, I don't have a problem with the fact that he controls the company, but to say that he needs more. Now, I think this is really pushback against the idea that he's building some very, very important technology outside of yeah. Tesla, not to the benefit of Tesla shareholders. That's really my complaint when the Tesla car screen and the <laughs> large language models that are being built combined is a huge opportunity. And, and Tesla needs to be in that opportunity. And yeah. currently, if you talk to your Tesla, it it's not good. You know? I, I, we got to go raw. I get the sometimes I get the feeling I just if I was Musk, I would just sit there on my couch with my friends and be like, I'm going to tweet something crazy. Watch this. 
just to right. see people's reaction. You don't even mean oh. it. You're just like, watch this, and then watch everybody do segments like this. Ross Gerber, yeah. appreciate it. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks right. for having me. Well, you're reaching 30 million people. All right, coming up, Disney just revealing Bob Iger's compensation for last year. And, yeah, some investors may also be angry about that. Stay with us. All right, let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. And first up is a biggie, Disney CEO Bob Iger's pay package. It is out, and it is big. Last year, Iger made $31.6 million all in, including stock. Now, Iger made $46 million three years ago, his last full year before retiring and then coming back. Disney shares did go up a little bit last year, but well underperformed the S&P 500. In other Disney news, the board officially nominated 12 directors for its election at an upcoming shareholders meeting, notably... Disney rejecting the investor, the nominations rather of investor Nelson Peltz and former Disney CFO James Rasulo. In other news, Axios reporting that Uber is working with Tesla to get its drivers to go electric. The company is sharing data with Tesla to figure out where drivers make the most trips in order to better develop charging infrastructure in those places. Uber is also offering drivers financial incentives if they buy a Tesla Model Y or 3. Now, let's get to your quicker than the ticker. All the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Another volcano erupting in southwestern Iceland for the second time in a month. Lava flows reaching a neighboring fishing town that was thankfully evacuated. This is the fifth eruption in the region since 2021. Uber shutting down alcohol delivery service Drizzly. The company was bought by Uber in 21 for $1.1 billion. Drizzly delivers beer, wine, and spirits, or they used to, because they're going to be shut down in March. Are the return to office wars over with employees the winners? Maybe. According to a new CEO survey in the conference board, only Six of 158 CEOs said they'll prioritize bringing workers back to the office full-time this year. Sir Elton John now has EGOT status, a.k.a. he is an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Award winner. He's only the 19th star to earn this title after winning an Emmy last night. Other EGOT winners include Viola Davis, Audrey Hepburn, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and U.S. News & World Report announcing the best jobs for 2024. The top five are nurse practitioner, financial manager, software developer, IT manager, Manager and physician assistant. That's it for Quicker Than the Ticker. All right, coming up, the football game that may have changed everything for the future of watching sports. That is next. All right, looks like it was a touchdown for Peacock this weekend. Kansas City's win over the Miami Dolphins reached a total of 27 million viewers. That, according to Nielsen, 16 million exclusively on Peacock alone, making it the most streamed event ever in America. What does this say about the future of sports and media, if anything? Let's bring in media watcher Tom Rogers, executive chair of Orbit Gaming and Entertainment, editor-at-large of Newsweek, first president of NBC Cable, founder of this network, and obviously, Tom, I got to say it, our viewers don't, Peacock is owned by our parent company, NBC Universal. You were an executive there, started this network. But I want to come at this in a fair way, too. I don't want people to think, here they are, talking up Peacock. There were some local viewers in Kansas City and Miami. Regular TV viewers could watch it. It was the NFL Plus mobile app. You could also watch it there. So in your mind, stripping all that out, was this a success? This was a huge success for uh, Peacock. And uh, 
Brian Robertson press release took a nice victory lap about it. It really was a win. When you think that 30% of all internet traffic during that time were people streaming Peacock, uh, you know that it proved that uh, when it comes to great content on a streaming service, people will find it. There were a lot of people who thought, geez, put a playoff game on streaming service, it'll get lost in the shuffle. It, it didn't at all. In some sense, it's not that surprising yeah. when you look at TV as a whole, 93 of the top 100 broadcasts over the last year were the NFL, uh, three college games were in there. And so football overwhelmingly dominates top broadcasts. And if you if you subscribe to Xfinity, which, of course, is Comcast and we they own us, NBC Universal, you can get Peacock for free. So there's a little bit of synergy there. But I'm sure there let's be honest, Tom, I heard it from people. I had friends texting me like, you know, what's going on here? Because they think I pay for cable. Why should I have to pay for this as well? Well, there is controversy that uh, there is leakage uh, from uh, the uh, broadcast and cable networks that own these sports into their streaming services. And some would say it's accelerating the decline of uh, the cable business. Uh, on the other hand, uh, these are enormous contracts. Uh, the NFL, over its 11 years of uh, contract term that it has with the uh, mm -hmm broadcast uh, and cable networks has over a hundred billion dollars of revenue coming in and yeah. you can't fault the media companies for using this to build their streaming services because it's the most popular content a lot of people have cut the cord and you got to give people a reason to think that uh, um, staying with a streaming service makes sense now we'll see if all those people who found peacock stay with peacock Churn is a huge issue for all the streaming services, and so the jury's still out if these subscribers will stay with Peacock. Could, could this have been done with any sport but football? Well, probably not. Football's in a in a league by itself, in the top 100 uh, broadcast of the year. There is no other sport. In terms of primetime television, uh, basketball has... Uh, broken through with some NBA Finals games. And I think we're going to find out just how important media companies believe the NBA is. That's the next big league to be up for bidding this spring. Um, it is a must-have for ESPN. It's a must-have for Warner Brothers Discovery's TNT. Mm -hmm. But this could well embolden uh, Comcast NBC to uh, bid on the NBA. Uh, particularly given the success they saw as, uh, the major sports had for its streaming service. Yeah. If it were to take it away from either of the other two, it would be a huge setback for uh, both Disney and Warner Bros. Discovery. That's another segment for another day. Tom Rogers, thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Folks, appreciate you all tuning in to Last Call. We'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.